0: Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. In November 2019, the Progressive Magazine hosted an event entitled Conversations on a Progressive Future with Noam Chomsky and David Barsamian at Pima Community College's Proscenium Theater in Tucson. Today, we continue with part four of this five-part series. Considered the founder of Modern Linguistics, Noam Chomsky joined the UA faculty in fall 2017, where he is a Laureate Professor in the Department of Linguistics in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. He is also the Agnes Noam's Hari Chair in the Agnes Noam's Howry Program in Environment and Social Justice. Dr. Noam Chomsky, Professor Emeritus at MIT, has introduced the world to ideas that have excited, incited, and challenged millions. His groundbreaking work in linguistics and his fearless engagements in politics, culture, history, and philosophy have profoundly impacted generations of students, scholars, community activists, and members of the public across and within political and ideological divides. Investigative journalist David Barsamian hosts the nationally syndicated show Alternative Radio and has co-authored books with Noam Chomsky, Akbar Ahmad, Howard Zinn, Tariq Ali, Richard Wolf, Arundhati Roy, and Edward Said. His latest books are with Noam Chomsky, Global Discontents, Rising Threats to Democracy, and Edward Said, Culture and Resistance. He lectures on world affairs, imperialism, capitalism, propaganda, the media, and global rebellions. Norman Stockwell is publisher of The Progressive. Since 1909, The Progressive has amplified voices of dissent and those underrepresented in the mainstream with a goal of championing grassroots progressive politics. The event was a benefit for The Progressive magazine. In part four of this five-part series, David Barsamian and Noam Chomsky begin by talking about socialism today and socialism in the early part of the 20th century. They also explore the complexities of Palestinian-Israeli relations
1: and other impasses in foreign affairs. I'm always uh, looking at history for possible lessons and inspiration uh, for what's going on today, Howard Zinn being a a big influence on me and and many others. I was in Kansas City um, very recently and um, learned more about Appeal to Reason. Uh, This was a weekly socialist newspaper that astonishingly in 1910 had a subscription base of 450,000. Uh, I wish today the Progressive Magazine had that many subscribers. Uh, it had a weekly circulation in, in, in the many hundreds of thousands. Its writers were Upton Sinclair, Jack London, Mother Jones, Eugene Debs, and Helen Keller. That's just one example of a past that is largely hidden from view. Uh, we have other examples in Oklahoma for example. I mean, these are states that you would think are on the extreme right and have been historically. Not the case at all. In 1914, Oklahoma had 175 elected socialist officials in the state. Uh, Eugene Victor Debs in 1900 first ran for president, got under 100,000 votes as Socialist Party candidate. In 1920, 10 years later while he was in prison in Atlanta, he received almost a million votes. Now today You know, socialism is being denounced by the occupant in the Oval Office. It's never going to happen in the United States. But because of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, the word has been injected into the political uh, discourse once again. What do you think about the possibilities of a socialist outcome?
2: Well, what you say is quite correct. In fact, the most radical uh democratic movement in American history, was uh, the populist movement. I have to say, I shudder when I hear the word populism being used today. It has nothing to do with traditional populism. The populist movement was a movement that started with farmers in Texas and moved through the Midwest, uh, Kansas, uh, Oklahoma, Wisconsin up to the north major movement uh, very radical policies uh, they wanted to get rid of the northern bankers uh, who lent them money at, with uh, you know, demanding uh, usurious uh, payments uh, controlled the marketing system they wanted to control it themselves cooperatively owned banks cooperative organization of marketing uh, basically developing a Socialist Society at the base, huge movement. They were just beginning to link up with the Knights of Labor the major uh, uh, The first major uh, labor movement again a very huge mostly urban-based movement which had radical uh, p- uh, political goals I mean one of their slogans was that those who work in the mills should own them uh, People should not be it's hard to remember maybe but a uh, slogan of the Republican Party uh, back in the mid-19th century, Lincoln's Republican Party, was that there's no difference between wage labor and slavery, except that uh, wage labor is temporary until a person can become free again. But no one should be uh, at the command of a master. That's intolerable. Uh, that was the view of that was the view of working people and their press and so on uh, there's a very rich radical background in the country uh, far beyond what what uh, uh, bernie sanders and uh, elizabeth warren or anybody's talking about in fact what's called socialism today is sort of new deal liberalism i mean the maybe extended uh, so uh, the programs, the policies that Sanders is advocating it wouldn't really have surprised uh, President Eisenhower very much. You read Eisenhower's statements about labor rights or the New Deal, he was, he said, any political figure who doesn't accept the New Deal and support the rights of working men doesn't, to unionize, doesn't belong in our political system. You know, That's not Sanders, that's Eisenhower. Uh, the country has shifted so far to the right that what looks like a radical revolutionary position used to be normal. And uh, as you mentioned, among the many forms of American exceptionalism, so-called, is that the word socialism, which usually means moderate social democracy, uh, the word has become a curse word. That's not true anywhere else. If somebody somewhere else says he's a socialist, or for that matter, a communist, it just means you're kind of on the critical edge of the political system. Here, its uh, it's been turned into a, a four-letter word. You can't utter it. So Sanders seems uh, to be breaking uh, all kind of rules when he uses the word, which is standard everywhere else.
0: You are listening to Conversations on a Progressive Future with Professor Noam Chomsky and investigative journalist David Barsamian on 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson.
2: So Yes, there's a rich tradition. Actually, uh, Gabriel Kalko, who both of us know, a great historian, died a couple of years ago. Uh, he has a very interesting book on American history. Uh, called uh, Mainstream of American History. Actually, it came out under several different titles, but it's very much worth reading. Uh, One of the things he argues is that after the populist movement in the United States was sort of pretty much crushed by force, uh, many of the radical farmers just left for Canada and formed the basis of the Canadian uh, social democratic movement. Or because that's one of the reasons for the relatively more progressive character of Canadian politics. The People just left, uh, people who were represented by Bob LaFollette, the founder of the Progressive, and others. Uh, so yes, there is a, and in fact, I don't think this is very far below the surface. If you penetrate surface propaganda, I think people tend to accept these ideas. You can see it, for example, in uh, polls about uh, almost any issue you look at, say, medical care. I mean, there's been enormous propaganda, corporate propaganda, to try to demonize the idea of some form of national health care. But if you look at polls going far back, when people are asked about it, is health a... Right that the government should defend, he gets very high support. In fact, in, in the Reagan years, uh, when one of the que- one of the questions that Gallup Gallup poll asked was, uh, "Do you think there ought to be a constitutional amendment that uh, guarantees the right to health care?" About seventy percent of the population agreed. In fact, about forty percent of the population thought there already was. Such a constitutional, but because it 's so obviously the right thing, uh, you take a look at a referenda on this over the years. They start with uh, enormous support for national health care. Then the corporate propaganda starts you 're going to lose your you won 't be able to see your doctor uh, uh, the uh, you know, 'll lose your health care. Uh, uh, the government's going to take everything from you. It goes on and on. Uh, you see the numbers supporting it drop. Uh, we're seeing that right now, in fact. Uh, the, the popular support is right below the surface on major issues, gets beaten down by scare tactics. Okay? Uh, so right now in the New York Times, kind of a moderately liberal journal, when uh, you see an article on Warren's proposal it's all about how it's unaffordable. Uh, you don't see an article about how the fact that it'll cut American health care spending probably by about half, uh, judging by the uh, model in other advanced countries. Huge savings. Uh, that It's possible that taxes will go up, but other savings will go way down. And incidentally, you might want to think about that. We have a slogan in the United States that the only thing you can't escape is death and taxes. Taxes are considered a horrible burden. You think about it for a minute, and you can see that attitudes towards taxes is a measure, a pretty good measure, of the extent to which a country is democratic. If, If you had a perfect democracy, you know, people getting together, making decisions, uh, informed in deliberation, deciding. Here's the plans we want for next year. Here's the way we're going to pay for them. In a country like that, uh, April fifteenth would be a day for celebration. We made the decisions. We decided what we wanted. We decided we're going to pay for how we're going to pay for it. Now we're doing it. What's to complain? So. In a real democracy, taxes would be applauded. As uh, you take a look at the, at the very other extreme, pure dictatorship, uh, taxes would be hated. Taxes are just something that that alien force, the government, steals from you. Okay, we obviously don't want that. Uh, you might ask yourself where the United States lies in this spectrum, and what that implies. None of this is quantum physics. It's right on the surface. Any 10-year-old kid can understand it in no time. But, it's, but you have to penetrate the surface, the surface of doctrine and uh, propaganda and ideology. And I think when you do, you find a lot of common humanity, lots of ways for people to overcome the uh, divisiveness that seems to uh, plague them on the surface.
1: Electoral politics. Can people are asking, can Trump be beaten in the 2020 election, and who can do it?
2: Your guess is as good as mine. I don't have any crystal ball on that. I think it's touch and go. It uh, depends on depends on popular mobilization, uh, uh, dedication, uh, commitment, on breaking through. Uh, the flood of lies and distortions. Uh, we should mention something that we all know but don't talk about. The crucial issues that really matter for our lives and for our children's lives and future generations are not even being discussed in the election campaign. Okay. Just not discussed. Uh, the worst policy The worst crime of the Trump administration, there are lots of crimes, but the worst ones, far and away beyond any others, are the climate policy and the nuclear weapons policy. Those just swamp everything else in significance. Is anybody talking about them on the campaign trail? I mean, in the impeachment uh, proceedings, are they an issue? The really critical things are off the agenda. Is if you ask uh, whether Trump can be defeated, one of the ways is putting those things right in the center of political concern. Uh, everybody except uh, you know somebody's really pathological maniac uh, wants their grandchildren to have a decent life. Uh, nobody wants their grandchildren uh, to hate them as the worst criminals in history, which is what's gonna happen as things are going. Who wants that? How many people, I don't think, just to put a few more dollars in your pocket. Uh, well, I think people can be reached on that.
1: How are, how are you doing? Hmm? I've got a few more questions for you, as you can see.
2: Okay. Are you okay? I'm okay, so far.
1: All right, let's, let's, cause I only have like 356 questions to ask you. Okay. I didn't want to overdo it. Come on.
0: You are listening to Conversations on a Progressive Future with Professor Noam Chomsky and investigative journalist David Barsamian on 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson.
1: But uh, let me ask you about something called PEP. Have you heard of that?
2: PEP.
1: Progressive except Palestine. Oh. <laughs> so So... Uh, It's kind of an interesting aspect of our scene in this country that many who advocate the rule of law, promote human rights, extol the principle of self-determination, and call for freedom and justice everywhere except for Palestine. And that issue has been so central to your political activism and commitment uh, over the years. And you know, here we are at almost at the end of 2019, and Palestine is still asunder, still under occupation.
2: Worse than that, uh, Gaza, which is the most uh, horrendous victim, is probably going to become literally uninhabitable within a few years, under constant Israeli attack, uh, boycott. Uh, closing of borders, closing of opportunities, to, destroying the uh, the health system, the power system, the sanitation, uh, preventing uh, uh, fishermen from going out more than a couple of miles, uh, uh, constant military attacks, uh, uh, slaughter, destruction. Uh, the uh, UN monitors are literally predicting that in a couple of years it will be uninhabitable. Uh, meanwhile, the West Bank, the Rest of the areas is, uh, is being uh, sliced up by settlement programs, which are designed. This has been going on since uh, the late about 1970. One way or another, both major political groupings are involved in a uh, systematic plan to construct a kind of greater Israel, which will inclu- which includes a vast, what's called now Jerusalem, which is about five times the size of what it ever was, took in lots of Palestinian villages, which under Trump, uh, changing U.S. policy has now uh, been uh, authorized to be annexed by Israel. It's a sharp change. Uh, To the east, uh, there are corridors built which bisect uh, uh, the what remains of the Palestinian territory. all Jewish towns, maldad Dumeim, Ariel, others uh, put there. And it's all being integrated into Israel by uh, very extensive infrastructure developments. If any of you happen to have visited, you know that you can travel around the West Bank on superhighways uh, and uh, not even know that there's a Palestinian in existence. Uh, these are all the Jewish-only or tourist-only uh, uh, road structures. Meanwhile, the areas of Palestinian population concentration are being avoided and encircled. There's, like, the heavy, heavy population in, say, Nablus. Don't touch that. Uh, the idea is to create a system in which, when it all gets integrated and annexed into Israel, it won't affect what they call the demographic problem. Now, the demographic problem means that too many non-Jews in a Jewish state, okay? So it won't affect that because the Palestinian populations are either being avoided or or they're being expelled, like in the Jordan Valley, largely being expelled, uh, which Israel tends to take over. Uh, by now, the Palestinians, I think they're about... 160 or so Palestinian enclaves, which are pretty much separated from one another. Uh, Farmers are separated from their fields and so on. Very systematic policy. Uh, That's what's been developing before our eyes uh, for pretty much 50 years. Uh, The U.S. has been supporting it, gives it enormous aid. Uh, How about the population here? What do they think about it? I think that's pretty interesting. It used to be an untouchable issue. For years, uh, you've had the same experience. For years, uh, I've tried to give talks on this. I literally had to have police protection in universities. Um, I go to a major university and take one case, UCLA in this case, back in the 80s, I spent a week giving philosophy lectures but I was also giving political talks. as I usually do when I go somewhere. And most of them were on Central America at that time. But one professor, uh, a guy who actually happened to be teaching half the year in Tel Aviv, uh, asked me to give a talk on the Middle East. I said, of course, glad to. Uh, the next day I got a phone call from the campus police saying uh, they wanted me to have uh, uniform police with me the entire time I was on campus. I didn't accept that, so they had undercover police following me around the whole time, sitting in on philosophy lectures. Uh, uh, The talk itself was under airport security, you know, one entrance inspecting handbags and so on. There were meetings physically broken up, even at my own university, MIT. Uh, uh, It it was uh, almost impossible to talk about it. Uh, Nobody complained at that time about free speech or anything. Uh, This was fine. It changed. About uh, 15, 20 years ago, this started a change. It's now radically different. You go to give a talk on Israel-Palestine, you can barely get a hostile question. Uh, It's not necessarily a good thing, because there's issues that should be thought about, but there's a radical change. Uh, it shows up even in polls. So, for example, uh, the base for uh, support for Israeli policies used to be in liberal America. Uh, the Democrats were the main source for support for Israeli policies, radically changed. And now uh, a majority of uh, people who identify themselves as liberal Democrats are more supportive of Palestinians. This is especially true among young people. Support for Israel in the United States has moved over to the far right. Uh, evangelical Christians, uh, ultranationalists, uh, a part of the Republican Party, uh, this offers real opportunities for changes in American uh, policy. Unfortunately, it's not being pressed by the by solidarity movements. I think this should be at the top of their top priority. It's uh, getting U.S. policy to change. And I don't think that's impossible. Uh, Just looking at the public attitudes and looking at the actual policies, uh, you should bear in mind that U.S. military aid, probably all aid to Israel, is illegal under U.S. law. That's a point that could be and made public. why is it illegal? Well, for one thing because of the Symington Amendment, 1974, uh, which uh, bans. US aid, particularly military aid, to any country that uh, constructs nuclear weapons and does not accept the non-proliferation treaty. Well, Israel of course does it has a huge nu- nuclear arsenal. The way the U.S. gets around it is by pretending, I stress pretending, that it doesn't know that Israel has nuclear weapons. Of course, everybody knows it's a perfectly open secret, but they pretend we don't know, you know, maybe they do, maybe they don't. So we can keep pouring military aid. Uh, uh, Obama had this huge flood of military aid, $30 million over 10 years, something like that, by pretending that they don't know that uh, that Israel has nuclear weapons. Uh, there's also the what's called the Leahy Law, Patrick Leahy, which bans military aid to any uh, military unit that is engaged in systematic human rights violations. Uh, the human rights violations are so extreme that we don't even have to talk about them. I think those are issues that could be pressed. Actually, they have a lot of significance beyond Israel. So take uh, what's considered uh, one of the major, and is in fact one of the major problems, dangers in world affairs, Uh, the uh, conflict between the United States and Iran. Uh, The United States is right now imposing, as you know, of course, a Trump- Broke the, uh, the joint agreement under which uh, Iran was banned from developing nuclear weapons. It broke that and imposed extreme sanctions to try to destroy the economy. And remember, the US, is, the US is the only country in the world that can impose sanctions. Just look around. No other country imposes sanctions, they don't have the power to do it. But U.S. power is so enormous that it can sanction anybody it wants and destroy their economy. Furthermore, U.S. sanctions are imposed on third parties. So if, say, uh, Sweden wants to break uh, the U.S. sanctions on uh, Cuba, they'll be cut out of the international financial system, which the U.S. controls. Uh, Europe wants to continue the agreement with Iran, but they can't the U.S. can cut them out of the international financial system. This is an extraordinary level of power, rarely discussed, uh, but think about it, uh, there's, there's a very great danger now that conflicts in the Gulf uh, could, even just by accident, break out and lead to war in the region.
0: We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to Conversations on a Progressive Future with Professor Noam Chomsky and investigative journalist David Barsamian on 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. The event was a benefit for the Progressive magazine. This has been part four of a five-part series. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the 30 Minutes program page, at kxci.org. There you can also subscribe to the podcast and follow our social media links. Thank you for listening. I'm Amanda Shocker.